welcome to Concert Pipeline. I'm Steve Jones. Uh, today on the program, we have Frederick uh, Sirota from Data Rock. Uh, I had a chance to interview Frederick. We had a long, great chat, um, actually, and he even uh, uh, pulled out the guitar and jammed a bit for the program. So you'll get to check that out a little bit later. Um, we'll get back to Frederick in just a bit. Uh, before we do, uh, let me catch you up on uh, what's going on in my life, as you'll notice. It's my Peloton right behind me. It's in my new fucking house. Uh, this is the house that I own. Uh, it's crazy. I mean, it just feels crazy and cool and overwhelming and exciting and and nostalgic in different ways as well because I moved for the first time in eight years. This is a lot, uh, living in Napa um, on the property that I rented and grew, uh, my kids have thus far grown up in. Um, is the longest place I've ever lived anywhere. Uh, nowhere that, uh, there's nowhere even close. Nowhere even close. I think the last place, you know, might be two years max. And for my whole life, from what I can remember. Uh, so sitting in one place and call, calling that home is, you know, it, it, it was an amazing feeling. And even though I, I didn't own the house, the house was, you know, old and had its quirks, uh, didn't have a doorbell, didn't have a dishwasher didn't have, you know, these modern technologies that uh, uh, that a lot of people are used to. Not far from a smart home, let's say, right? I can't turn on lights with a, uh, an app or anything. The lights flicker when the washing machine is on uh, at that house, but it was my fucking home. Uh, it felt like home. And it was th uh, three minutes from my best friend of 20 years, Joe, uh, which, was, which was really awesome. Um, my family is there, my mom and sister, uh, yeah, I had, you know, other friends that there's a lot of his, history. I grew up in Napa to a degree. Um, I could spin the camera during interviews and show uh, artists the vineyard, the uh, that property that I lived on, even though it was, wasn't mine. I didn't own it. I own this motherfucker here. I own this house that I'm in here in Vacaville and I'm stoked on it. Uh, it's going to be a big change. It's nerve wracking. It's 45 minutes from Napa. And I, uh, I said my best friend, Joe. Uh, it's uh, 45 minutes from my family, but it's also closer to some other friends who live in like Sacramento area. Um, it's easier to get duck hunting there. Uh, I own this fucking home. Uh, it's a four bedroom house uh, and uh, we've just finished moving everything out of the other house. The, the house in Napa is empty. I'll be sleeping in that house a couple more nights though uh, for Bottle Rock. Um, empty house, gonna be sleeping on an air mattress and biking to Bottle Rock. Not taking this bike. I'm not taking this bike, right? This one is the bike that goes nowhere, but I'm gonna take my actual bicycle to Bottle Rock and cover it, uh, the festival and interview a handful of bands and that will uh, roll out um, in the weeks after Bottle Rock, along with some other content. I'm sure I'll be recording video of the festival and put that out in an episode. We'll get more, no shortage of Bottle Rock content in the coming weeks and months. Uh, that it that is coming down the pipe, but I wanted to shoot this uh, in my this is my kitchen, um, and this is you know uh, back there in my backyard. It's mine. I own it. It's it's just it's crazy and overwhelming. And you know it was scary and nerve wracking to buy a house and put all my money into uh, making this happen. Really, right? Um, you know, I mean, I I'm going to be living a different lifestyle in this house, and things are going to be a, a lot tighter, but it's something that I can be proud of that I accomplished. So it's pretty fucking cool. Um, and thank you for letting me uh, share some of that. So I'll say cheers.
the, uh, the concert pipeline audience. Yes, this is a margarita. And uh, and thank you for indulging me as I uh, uh, just showed a little bit of excitement here on the program uh, about uh, my new venture. It's been a beast to get into this house. I tune into any of the previous episodes and you'll uh, hear kind of the, the story, but uh, I've been working my way into this house for the past couple of months. Um, and finally, just about everything I own is in this household. And it's just getting everything in its home. And I, I, I feel like I can't stop once I start. So it's just crazy, exhausting. Today, I took a, a dump run. I went back to the Napa house, borrowed Joe's truck, uh, took it to the, uh, filled it with crap from my garage that um, you know, old mattresses and broken down box spring. We had to bust up my box spring. Um, my kids' mom and stepdad were super helpful yesterday in helping me get the last of the stuff out of the house and then take a second moving truck here to Vacaville. Uh, we busted up my box frame uh, because it was not coming downstairs in one piece. I'm cool with it. I already bought another one. Um, and that one was in pieces and uh, taken to the dump today. So uh, did that and then worked with my house cleaner to finish cleaning up the house and getting it uh, ready to hand back over to the rental company and the owner. Uh, so that is pretty exciting, I'd say. Um, yeah, that's what's going on in my world. That's it. I'm utterly exhausted. So I'm going to keep this short. And we have a, a big, long interview, a, a great long chat with uh, Frederick from Data Rock. And so we're going to get into that now. I don't want to even uh, preface too much of the interview because uh, we get into it all. We talk about it all. And, uh, and what a cool band. Frederick was super cool to jam for the program too. So we'll, uh, we'll include that. And let's bring Frederick in now. How's your day going so far, Frederick? Well, uh, you know, it's pretty good. It's been raining all day, but finally uh, it, uh, it lit up a little. So now it, it cleared up a little. And what you're seeing right there is the house where I recorded uh, my Rona Diaries in the basement. Oh, nice, nice. It's a, it's a great album. Well, thank you, thank you so much. And, and I love and, what you did, did with it, you know, with uh, bringing it to life as well, you know, in the live setting uh, also. I mean, what a, what a great, unique uh, kind of way of uh, kind of expanding upon uh, that album that you created. Well, thank oh, I lost your audio and video. There, there you go. go. I, 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 I don't understand. I wanted to show you the, the, the town and I, I fucked up the video. Sorry. Well, You're thank good. you so much. I did, I did hear what you said. Thank you so much. I mean, uh, by the way, I forgot to ask you, how are you doing today? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm good. I'm, you know, I'll, you, you showed me yours. So I'll, I'll show you my, my, uh, my view right now. Uh, so, uh, I oh, mean, nice. Uh, I'm in Napa, California. Um, oh, I, you lucky bastard. Are you really? Uh, I know. I only get to enjoy that view for like two more weeks, though I'm moving. So, <laughs> oh, <laughs> about okay. my, oh, you're in, yeah. But you're in Napa. About my first you, house, you've been so, living yeah. there for a long time, or? Yeah, I lived here for eight years, raised the kids half their life, you know, I mean, most of oh. their whole lives, but you know, they're, you know, we're in the middle of a big move. So, two couple All right. Times okay. Over. Good luck with that. But, oh, man. I always wanted to go to Napa. I have to say that I must have been to San Francisco and Los Angeles like 20 times, but we never had the time to visit Napa. 
I know you'll be gone. So what's the reason for uh, going there? No, you don't need to come, right? So you just keep, come to San Francisco, you know, come to the area. It's okay. Fine. What, uh, so in San Francisco, like what are some of your memories of uh, playing in San Francisco? Where Where was your favorite place to play? Uh, I think, well, the first, well, I don't remember the first show. Yes, I do. It was called Chop Suey. Okay. I think, I think the first, I think the first show we ever did was a place called, I think it was called Chop Suey. Does it make any sense? I think that, it was, that, yeah. Sounds familiar. And then, and then, I think it was called Chop Suey, was it? Yeah, yeah, it was. And then, and then, uh, but that was fun. But then we played this really tiny little place, which was called, it's named after the, the not the tuk-tuk in Thailand, but as a, a similar small vehicle. What the hell is it oh. called? Rockshaw, Rockshaw. Rickshaw stop, called, yeah. The rickshaw, that's it, that's it. Yes. It was really, fun, it was really funny, because some friends of us from Norway, um, from a hardcore band or metal band, called the purified in blood were there they just happened to be there and they're very muscular and they have tattoos all over the place including facial tattoos and and when we came to the place it was so jam-packed that they automatically changed into like security mode <laughs> yeah <laughs> and these these are like the, these are the nicest guys they're they're all you know uh, straight edge vegan guys but um yeah, like that, they became like security. And they got us through the crowd and we actually had to force our way into the room to even access the stage. That was a lot of fun. I remember we played, what is it called, Funda Theater? I'm not sure, I'm not familiar with that one offhand, I don't think so. Is it, is it ben, Henry Funda? It's oh, one Henry in Los Fun Angeles. Okay, yeah, that's, that's Los Angeles, yeah. I'm, I've heard of that, yeah. But then there was, it's like this super classic venue in, in San Francisco, which is I, the, I, the film. No, the, film the Ray. Something Ray. The Ray is Los Angeles, called? I think. El Ray. Is, El, El Ray is Los Angeles. Yeah, we play that obviously, yeah. but but in San Francisco there was this beautiful classic, like a theater concert hall. I remember yeah. backstage was like tons of photos of the Grateful Dead and. Oh yeah, yeah, like the, the Fillmore, right? The Fillmore, yeah, 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 the yes. Fillmore. So, so, yeah. so, what, what, what was really nice about our kind of our journey in uh, in San Francisco is like we we played, you know, from the very most minute, super nice underground places like the the rickshaw or the Independent, and I think it was called Chop Suey, and something bottom of the hill. Was yeah, yeah, bottom of the hill. Right. And it was another one, which was like, it was the second floor. And it was called, I don't remember what it was called, but we played it several times. What the hell was that? And I loved playing there. No, but the, it was interesting because for a little while, uh, around, I guess around 2020, well, we started going to the US in 2003. First show we ever played in the US was, by the way, um, The Empty Bottle, you know, okay. in Chicago. Where's, where, Chicago, okay. Yeah, and we were, as you can probably can hear on my solo album, we were like, we were religious when it came to Chicago post-rock, you know? So for us to yeah. come to the, the very first show we ever did in the US was at the church, the holy church of post-rock, the empty bottle. And, um, and this, this, this guy approached us and his name was uh, 
but the company's name was uh, Windish Agency, and, and we didn't know who they were. Uh, so the very first show we ever did in Chicago, we were signed to the Windish Agency. And uh, Tom Windish now books Lord and Billie Eilish, you know. Oh, okay, <laughs> so, okay. Yeah, so that was, yeah, that was, that was, I, I also remember something else specifically, and that was, we weren't supposed to get anything for the show. And then after the show, the head bartender said, hey guys, that was a really good job, and thank you so much, and I want you to have this. And then we got $10 for the show. Oh, okay. <laughs> nice little <box laughs> You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah and, we could and, eat and, for three days now. <laughs> Yeah, but but uh, and looking back at it, it was at, at the time we were like bewildered because uh, ten ten dollars. I mean, we flew here, you know. <laughs> but, yeah, yeah. But then, but then it only took me like a second to realize that he just gave me or us ten dollars out of his tips. Yeah. So what a nice gesture, it's, huh? It's out of his own pocket, exactly. Not the, exactly, yeah. exactly. Such such a nice gesture. So, yeah. So so that very first trip to uh, America was. Uh, Empty bottle in uh, Chicago, and then the knitting factory in, yeah, in New York yeah, City. Yeah, yeah, not the original in San Francisco, I guess. But uh, yeah, and then yeah. we just started traveling. I think we did something like twenty-two big and small tours in the U.S., including V Festival, I guess, in San Francisco. V Fest, you know, Virgin 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 Mobiles Free Festival. Okay, I think. I think Is that in San Francisco. It was in San Francisco, yeah. Okay, okay. And I think, you know what? I think the year we played, I think they gave away something like 40,000 tickets. Wow, okay. It was a free, it was a free festival. Anyway, yeah. so, uh, so I guess uh, even Sir Richard Branson has uh, some really good ideas. <laughs> he's got, you know, <laughs> he's willing to give a couple of bucks here and there to let people in. Yeah, show, right? So, yeah, yeah I, I, I do also think it was a promotional stunt for the for the telecompany called the Virgin Mobile. Oh, so. they're making money off of it one way or another, whether it's your tickets oh, or yeah, sponsorships exactly, exactly. or, you know, so. Yeah, yeah, man. Yeah. 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 No, but so. So anyway, so. so uh, but, uh, but for instance, when I went to Los Angeles recently to, to, to finish up the, the new album, I was actually visiting. I was actually staying at uh, Jerry Casala. You know that, like the boss of Devo. Okay. I was staying in his house in Santa Monica, and he wasn't there because he has his own winery in in Napa, which uh, is called okay. Fifty by Fifty. And and uh, and you know, every time someone says, "Oh, I made this," you want to try it. It's always scary, you know, because yeah, yeah, you you, you know, there's a chance you have to, you know, pretend you like it, you know. You're like, is this and, your practice, you know, or is this not, you have, are you, you know, more tenured in your ability to, to make wine and yeah. No, but, 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 but check it out. You can imagine that. So, so I'm trying his, his own Pinot Noir, right? And it was amazing. So if you ever have the chance before you leave, you should pick up okay. some 50 by 50 Pinot Noir by Jerry Casalo of Devo. Okay. I'll have so to check that out. Yeah. Yeah, so but he well he joined us at, at the house after a couple of days, so at least he has a, a place there, so I can still visit someone in Napa. <laughs> I'm sorry, I, you know, if if you come in the next Why two are you weeks, leaving? you're you're uh, you're welcome here. Okay, so come on down. Okay, <laughs> oh, hang by the vineyard. Uh, <laughs> but 
but I want to ask about, so like, tell me about the vibe growing up in terms of music. Like what was on in your house? Were your parents inspirational at all, at all to you musically? Yeah, I, I, I definitely, I'd, I'd say so. I mean, uh, my father, my father was born in India in 1942, uh, but in 57, that part of the country that, that he was born in became Pakistan. So I'm, I'm assuming this national competition he won was in Pakistan. But he, when he was a young man, he, he did exactly like me. It's really interesting because he passed away when I was seven. But I, I, I ended up having exactly the same university degree as he had from his hometown in Pakistan, which I never even visited. But, but uh, when he was a student, what he spent his time doing was doing theater and music, which was what I was doing when I was a student. And he actually won a national competition as a singer. Uh, this must be in, now wait a minute, so Pakistan was 47, he was in 42. This one must have been when he was like 18 or 19. So, so around 1960, I guess. Yeah, he won a national competition in what would have been the world's sixth largest population. So my father yeah. wins a national singing com com competition. I, I didn't know this until I was an adult, obviously. I, I, I even have his prize thing that he got for the competition in my house. Like, oh, nice. Oddity. Okay. Yeah. Such an oddity, huh? So, and I mean, I didn't obviously know him and I grew up with him until I was seven. And I do, I do remember that he would be singing and playing in the house. Um, and uh, sometimes I meet people who are really um, knowledgeable about, uh, uh, I guess, world music, you know? And they, they, can, they actually say that if you listen to the melodic notes in Daedrock's music, you can hear quarter notes that must have been affected from his kind of singing because yeah. if, if you listen to if you listen to basically all dead rock songs I, I always bend the songs very accurately um identically every time i sing them and even the saxophone has to do the same so if you listen to a song like i used to dance with my daddy it's not put your hands on the phone it's always put your hands on the phone and i always sing exactly the same and it's quarter notes right yeah so the way i constantly bend the notes in pretty much every single song i do someone told me that's kind of specific to the kind of traditional Pakistani uh, ballads and stuff. So <laughs> isn't it odd? Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So you're really kind of following odd. in his footsteps. You got the same degree uh, as him. But so, mean, for some reason, yeah. Like, you, you, I find that you turn into your parents in, in a sense, right? Like, I mean, there's a piece of it that yeah. I don't know if it's genetic. I, like you try, like I, you try not to in certain ways, oh, yeah. right? Yeah. And you try and correct the mistakes that you see them making, but then you end up making some of the same ones anyway. You True. have to learn, yeah. learn through the yeah, errors, yeah, right? No, definitely. Yeah. yeah. And also uh, another funny detail about, you know, growing up was, I, you know, it, I know that my father actually has a recording uh, by, um, let me think, Ravi Shankar who came to okay. this town in 1975. So he must have attended some concerts, right? Yeah. Because he, he, he actually did a, rec a stereo recording of the concert, which I have on tape. That's really Ravi Shankar in Bergen, Norway, 1975. That's insane. But, uh -huh. but anyways, uh, but my, my mother, my mother played 
the trumpet when she was young. And she was very proud of the fact that she had perfect pitch. Yeah. Which I don't. I don't. I don't even know what that means, kind of. I, I do know what, what it means, but what the hell? When do you when do you need that? I don't know. But but yeah. so 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 uh, so they were they they identified as very musically interested but I don't really remember that, you know, that there was a lot of music. I do remember Simon and Garfunkel and Leonard Cohen. That's what yeah. I remember. And then when you listen to uh, to what I do now is I play uh, an acoustic guitar and I sing soft songs. So it's definitely there somehow. You know? Yeah. And then did but, I hear that you, you picked up the cello as a kid? Is that is that something you picked up it, when you were younger or? Yeah, and I mean, I mean, she, my mother, w was very supportive of that. Obviously, I, I don't remember her ever driving me to soccer practice, but I do remember her always driving me to cello class. <laughs> you know? Yeah, she was consistent about that. <laughs> yeah, but uh, but uh, but yeah, but I, you know, I, I mean, obviously, to this day, I think it's a wonderful instrument uh, because it's on the new album. But you know, I, I, I don't think I had much talent for that. My, my my brother did the same, right? So I just started playing the cello because my big brother did. Yeah. Uh, but then he started playing uh, electric guitar. And, at, and and this, I mean, this was back in 87, 88, right? When we were kids. So so the kind of music we obviously started playing was thrash metal, because that's what you did. Or, you, you know, you would learn some, you know, punk stuff like sex, simple sex pistols riff but sure and then a little bit of like dio and black sabbath and that kind of stuff but the the thrash metal was something really identified with you know because because even though these guys were i mean they were very young sepultura and 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 i guess creator and nuclear assault and metallica and uh, slayer and all those guys were I, I i'd say they they must have been very young in 87 or whatever but they just seemed so, they seemed so young. They seemed so like adolescent kids. So when we, when we watched like Hadbinger's Ball on MTV or whatever, yeah, yeah. we really, we, we saw ourselves in those guys, you know? And they kind of looked like us too. Plus it was very easy to emulate their style, right? You just grow your hair, put on a cap and some, and start skateboarding. And then you're a Californian guy. You've had the park, exactly, yeah. You know, and then, but then, but then, uh, but then so, so I, so I started, I started playing thrash metal. That's what I did. And my, and my first band was actually called Axe. And we even had a song called Motor Axe. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, but, so back then, I mean, I mean, the metal scene in Bergen was, we were so young and, and, and obviously, you know, stupid kids. So it was a lot of humor. It's a lot of humor. And I, I, and I was very surprised when, when that, the whole metal scene became so, you know, ridiculously serious that you even ended up having killings and church fires and all of that. And, yeah. and, and I mean, if anybody has seen like Lords of Chaos and all of that, uh, that's not representative at all. And like looking, I mean, you don't need a lot of imagination to understand that kids ending up in a situation like that must have been in a pretty difficult state, right? Yeah. Whereas over here, I mean, everybody I know comes from completely normal homes. There was, as far as I know, no depression issues and all of that. So anyway, so when we did metal, it, it wasn't serious at all. But then positive and some negative stuff grew out of that and became the black metal scene of Bergen. And I don't know if you're familiar yeah. with this, but 
you you are the the black metal uh, scene from Berlin. A little bit, so I understand that yeah, like the, the scene kind of developed, you know, where you actually recorded your uh, your newest live yeah. album, right? Like, yeah, and 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 a lot of these people are my friends, you know. Uh, yeah. Very few of those guys are weird, you know. Like for mm -hmm. instance, you you know, uh, uh, Vice magazine once did this really really obnoxious uh, documentary about Christian Gall from Gorgoroth. And they portray him as this this lunatic, but he's he's the nicest person. He's such a nice guy. Like I mean, he's a dear friend. And it, yeah. and it's uh, for instance, I mean, I I opened a, a restaurant in 2013, which after six months was Michelin recommended, by the way. And 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 he was so knowledgeable when it comes to natural wines that he's been an kind of a, an expert sommelier ever since we started the, that whole mm -hmm. natural wine scene in Scandinavia, people know the guy. He's a super knowledgeable, super, super, super nice guy. So, so like the US portrayal of the Norwegian black metal scene, that's very cartoonish and it's absolutely not true to the fact at all. Most of those guys are, you know, A grade student, uh, uh, university deg degrees, super normal homes, blah, 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 you know. Anyways, that was a long detour. Coming back to what I did was, uh, I, I sort of came came from the metal scene, but then I discovered the British, the British uh, kind of the new Manchester scene, where you where they merged, you know, the new electronic uh, dance music production with guitar rock, like Happy Mondays mm -hmm. and Charlatans and Stone Roses, and I, I'd say even Ride or In Spiral Carpets and uh, Farm and all of those, and I fell madly in love. So. To be honest, what I, the music I heard in 1988, 89, when I was 12, which was that whole British scene, is really what still sort of informs data rock to this day, you know? Yeah. It really is kind of electronic beats with guitar rock. Yeah. And so this, so, sorry. So I wanted to ask you, so you, you mentioned your first band was, was Axe and there's some humor to it. And I can kind of feel that in uh, data rock a little bit, right? So, yeah. so what, what would you say you kind of took or learned from from acts that you were able to apply to to data rock <laughs> you know what that's a really really funny question because i never thought about it but data rock was the return to acts kind of because when i discovered that british music all i cared about was not brit pop i never cared too much about brit pop well i did like blur but particularly the first album leisure but the, but I was so into that sort of uh, etheric, feral, I guess, drugged out music, and I didn't understand the drugs because I was just a kid, and I, mm -hmm. and I became so serious about music. So I attended a music high school, and and I started taking music so goddamn seriously. It was kind of embarrassing. Like we're talking, such a nerd, right? The only thing we cared yeah. about was just practicing, and and like we disliked it every time. A friend of us got a girlfriend, you know. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. So that was what it was all about. And then, and then after, you know, in music in high school, when you when you kind of specialize in music, I, I guess this is the same for everybody. We we had something like eleven music subjects in addition to the regular subjects. And then when music is also your hobby and you take it so seriously, it stops being a lot of fun. Then you just quit, right? So, so I, I basically quit and I joined university and then I met the other guys that we created Data Rock with. And, and I basically said, I, I don't want to do this 
at all. If there is any ambition or if we have to take anything seriously, I don't want to sing. I don't want to play. I don't want to write anything. I just want to play the drums, which I, by the way, do poorly. So but that's so, what you wanted so to do. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I just wanted to drink some beer with the guys and play some drums and perhaps play a few shows. Who cares? Uh, but then the singer, who, by the way, was a man called, um, oh, Lord, right now, his name, Kevin O'Brien. Kevin O'Brien, a guy, a guy from Boston. By the uh -huh. way, Kevin from Boston was from the scene that gave birth to stuff like, um, uh, oh, what's their name? Uh, Bloodhound Gang. Okay. Like that, he's, he's from that yeah. scene. So he's a lunatic, right? So we had this, this lunatic the guy who was supposed to be the singer, but then his wife and he split up. So he moved back to Boston and I end up being the song, singer and songwriter. And that was an accident, right? But because I was supposed to just be the drummer and because uh, Kevin was, well, he was like a beat poet lunatic, you know, mm -hmm. we sort of just kept it going with that. It was very liberating when you just have fun. You know, sure. I, I'm not I'm not a funny person at all, but if you give me the opportunity, you know, I I I I I do appreciate a good laugh. You know. Yeah. So so for me, Dead Rock became like um, it became it became the Prozac of our lives, kind of like th th yeah. this was where a a, a, a bunch of grumpy geeky nerds could have a little bit of fun and it and, and it was such a nerd off you can't believe it you know yeah but by some reason by some reason which i will never fully understand at least 50 percent of our audience were always girls which i i really it's and that's a good balance right so <laughs> exactly and that pulled such a crowd because all the nerds knew that it was a lot of girls at our shows right yeah. So the show kind of developed from being this, uh, I guess, what what you would assume to be, you know, a nerd sausage party, to to this uh, like party frenzy where the, where all the weirdos and the nerds and the geeks and the guys who didn't usually attend that kind of party partied like Animal Farm kind of, you know. So so we had we we didn't we didn't see it coming at all. We thought we made a band for like five friends or whatever. And then we end up doing a thousand shows in 36 countries. Took us by yeah. surprise. <laughs> I mean, you've, you travel so many places. So like, what, I mean, you've seen so many things over your time at Dead Rock as well. So what, do, what is some of those highlights of locations that you've been able to, uh, to visit? Uh, well, we've, we've been to a lot of places that I didn't even know existed, you know? <laughs> yeah. Which is kind of fun. It's gonna. I have to admit that uh, we we did play on average twenty eight countries and traveled two hundred and fifty days a year for like five or six years. It was ridiculous, right? Yeah. So so sometimes uh, some of the shows actually struggled to remember even which country it was. You know. <laughs> yeah. But um, yeah, let me think. I, I have. I mean, since I was 16, I used to go to Denmark to this uh, festival called Roskilde, which is like a huge festival in Europe, well, in, in Denmark. It was, uh, I think it was 120,000 people there. Mind you, this was before wow. anybody had cell phones, you know? Yeah, yeah. 
you know, so, 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 so from when I was 16, I used to go to this place and I would see all the new exciting acts, but you would also see all the classic acts there. So you can imagine for me to go back to Roskilde to play the festival that I had attended since I was 16, that was amazing, you know. Yeah. Um, it was amazing uh, to play this. The first time we played like a major crowd was in Australia at a festival called Meredith Music Festival. And and again, we we didn't really know that we were a big deal whatsoever. And we, we came to this festival, which was like in the middle of the, the way I remember it was in the middle of the woods because it was in the middle of the woods. It was in the middle of nowhere outside of Brisbane. And and we come out to this field and, and, and there is a natural kind of hill where the, where the audience is standing. So you kind of, kind of, you kind of see the faces of everybody, right? Because it's a, what do you call it in English? I don't know, atrium. I Amph- don't know amphitheater, yeah. Exactly, a natural amphitheater, yeah. that's right. Yeah. And we, and we come, come out on stage and there is 13,000 people who know all our lyrics on the opposite side of the planet. That's you amazing, know? right? That, that, that was amazing. And, and also on the same tour, we realized that we were, we were doing this touring festival called Good Vibrations. Everything is called something with the vibe, vibrations in Australia. I don't know why. Good Vibrations was the tour. And, and, and we didn't really look too closely at what we were supposed to do. So we, we assumed it was a pretty small touring festival and that they had a little tiny tent in a corner where all the baby bands that nobody care, cared about would play uh-huh. next to the restroom. You know, that's what yeah, we thought yeah. we were doing. And we went down to Australia with just hand luggage. So, you know, a, a, a few extra pieces of underwear and socks and toothbrush and a toothbrush and that's it. And then and a guitar, a bass guitar, a Casio keyboard and backing tracks on a mini disc. That's the entire equipment ring we brought yeah. and only as a hand luggage. And then they told us, well, you're playing main stage before James Brown on a stadium tour. What? That's awesome. <laughs> Yeah, so we shared backstage with James Brown on, in eight cities on the first uh, abroad tour we ever did. Wow, what an, <laughs> what an experience, right? Like, I mean, did you did you get to meet Crazy. James and talk, you know, and learn from him anything? Yeah, I only I only spoke uh, directly to him and alone in the restroom, believe it or not, and because uh, <laughs> we had we had the same restroom, and and I was like, I mean, this is it's now or never, kind of. Yeah. I hope I hope we both washed our hands before we shook 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 hands. But, <laughs> but we but we yeah we shook hands and we, it was just the two of us talking and I don't know why man but it was the scariest moment of my life. He was it was just something so not exactly intimidating but it was something so scary about him. It was such a scary man. Yeah. And he was a tiny dude. So it was just something I like. I remember. I remember physically feeling that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But but I can remember physically feeling that that he sucked the life force out of my hand when I was shaking it. It was such a scary experience. It's very hard to explain. But he was such a scary dude, man. Anyways, but uh, he did a wonderful show, and yeah, he actually passed away just after that. And. And every night he did a show identical to the kind of shows you would see him do in his thirties. You know, yeah, it was it was it was wild. He was just as good in his 
70s as he was in his 30s. It was crazy. Oh, okay, so let me think. It was, I mean, you can imagine if, you, if you've been a music nerd since you were a kid and you've been re reading music publications your entire life and sort of dreaming yourself into that world, obviously coming to a city like London and you, seeing your, you know, the band name on, on the billboards or whatever, right? Yeah, because we did, because we were part of the, like the Apple commercial and all of that. So we were, we're actually on full, you know, skyscraper billboard size. What's, what the hell is going on? And the press would write about us and, you know, coming to cities like London, New York City, Los Angeles, um, well, San Francisco. And, and having the feeling that what we're doing is somehow relevant to people was just so amazing, you know? Yeah. And, 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 and even though the, the size of the venue or the festival or whatever would be identical to a town that you never heard about before, it, it obviously makes more of an emotional impact when you come to New York City or London and stuff like that, you know? Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, for us to, to I mean, the first times we sold out shows was in San Francisco and Los Angeles. Like we, we sold out shows in Los Angeles and San Francisco before we ever sold out a show in anywhere in Norway. So that was amazing. That's know? that's incredible. Put, yeah, yeah. And then and another really cool thing that we experienced was, uh, you know, meeting some of our idols and having them, you know, say that they appreciated what we what we do. So, so for instance, getting to befriend Devo is obviously a personal highlight because they're the reason why Datarock exists. You know. Right. Yeah. And and also. And also stuff like, I mean, it was cool playing Coachella because uh, the year we played Coachella in 19, no, I mean, in 2008, it was a very interesting festival. You had like, main act was Prince. Prince was the main right, act, right. you know? Yeah. You know, and, and, uh, and, and, uh, and, and, and Battles was playing the same day as us. And you had like Kowinski, Justice, all of, all, all of those interesting new you know, underground artists from around the planet was playing Coachella back then. It, it, it wasn't a Valley Girl festival. It, it, was, it was a music freak festival, you know? Sure. Yeah, like the only famous person I met backstage was Perry Pharrell, you know? Yeah. So, so, so that was a lot of fun. But to me, to this day, my proudest moment must be when Rolling Stone magazine listed one of our songs as one of the top best songs of the year. And when yeah. Enemy put our debut on number 36 of the best albums of the year. <laughs> but I mean, I live for that crap. I mean, I'm such a, I, I'm so easy to please. And like, I bought this in the, in the store and, and check this out. So Uncut Magazine, and you know, this is, I mean, it's embarrassing or, or I should be embarrassed. I realize I should be embarrassed for this, but I'm just so proud. I'm going to show you regardless. It's so I'm getting an eight. I'm getting an eight out of ten in Uncut Magazine, and what they're writing is just so nice. I just want to stop doing music because this like is you, you've, hit the, you've, hit, you've hit a milestone. You've you're you know you've made your mark, right? You can uh, <laughs> retire happy up from the music industry, right? So yeah, I mean, anyways, well, I, it's probably because of my age. I don't know, but the like when someone really knowledgeable about music says that all right good work that means the most for me kind of yeah you know yeah 
Yeah. Um, so, so let's talk about the new album a, a bit because I want to dig into kind of what what uh, what brought it together. And um, I mean, first off, tell me how you uh, came about deciding to uh, to bring it to the live uh, format with uh, with the strings and everything in the way in the way that you did. All right. Uh, I, I mean, when Daydog started, it was it was super collaborative, right? Like Kettle One would do some random weird ass beat and it would trigger some ideas in my head and then I would come up with melody and lyrics and we would work on it together, right? But then as I told you, I was practicing so much and I had so many ideas laying around, like more and more I, I would start writing songs from scratch, right? And very often because the other guys had all sorts of um, things to attend to, very often I just ended up just doing everything myself in the studio. Right, and that that means playing the bass, the keyboards, the percussion, the drums, the everything, right? Yeah. Which means that a, a, a lot of the data work recordings, I just play everything myself, and then I'm in a band that has to emulate what I do, right? There's very few recordings where I don't play the drums, for instance, you know. Sure. And and I just thought, I mean, that's that's fine. Like nobody minds because everybody puts their their identity and signature into every live show, anyways, you know. But um, but but for the for the for the for the solo album, I just thought I don't want to force anyone to sort of emulate what I do. I mean, I'm definitely not a particularly good, well, anything, but as at least not a, a good bass player or drummer or anything. So let's just try to find a way where I can sing these songs without anyone having to try to do what I do, kind of poorly on my solo album you know where yeah. everybody can do what they do the very best version and, and, and that stuff is hard when you when you have when you have a, a, an album it's very natural for the drummer to try to do the kind the same kind of beat the same kind of fills perhaps even the same kind of symbols and hi-hats and everything you know they just thought okay how could how can we do this completely different and make this you know very uh well solo solo album into something truly collaborative. And then I just thought, okay, I remember this. Do, do you know the Norwegian band Turbo Negro? Yeah, I've seen them live here at the Fillmore actually. Uh, yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. I love those guys. And, and uh, Thomas Seltzer, the bass player, he's, he's, a, he's, a, you know, he's an, a ridiculously intelligent, generous person. So he spent his entire life doing, uh, you know, super serious journalism basically and he had some really really interesting tv shows uh debate forums kind of and, and he once invited me to do his tv show and he wanted me to do cardis simon's you're so vain right yeah yeah and i said yeah and i said oh yeah thank you i really don't want to <laughs> yeah. and then I, by some reason i just said unless i can do a version with harp cello viola and violin and i don't know where that came from i just said it and you can actually, if you Google Data Rock and You're So Vain, you can, you can see that original um, first time I ever did anything with that kind of lineup, which it's such a special, weird lineup. Nobody does harp, cello, viola, and violin, right? So right. it was just something I did for his TV show years ago. And then, and then anyways, and then I had that in the back of my head. And, and I actually asked my booking agent to send that, video recording with my new album to the biggest, well, largest 
festival in the Nordic countries for art music and lie and say that I had string arrangements for my new new album or perhaps I lied to my 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 agent and then and then they and they booked it right and then I found myself in this very difficult position because then I, 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 I very rapidly I had to find four musicians I had to find someone to help me arrange all these songs and in the process I realized that I would lose so much money during COVID by the way so I had no income yeah, right yeah so, 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 so I, I realized that the cost of writing these arrangements is just so ridiculously high. And I was, it was so dumb. I had lied to the festival pretending I had the arrangements, right? So they uh -huh. obviously yeah. weren't prepared to pay for that. And then also uh, professional musicians at the level that we got on board is also very costly, right? So, so I put myself in this absurd position. I was like, what the hell have I done? Like we're, we're talking so much, you can't believe it. But then luckily the arrangement is a friend of mine and, and, and I told him it's very repetitive music. He once arranged an 87 piece orchestra for me for, for a data rock album called The Musical, which is by the way, only available on vinyl, I, I think on a limited number of copies. But anyways, so, so he, he knew how easy it was to work with me because we would have a conversation, he would do arrangements and then would say, oh, I love it, done, right? So that's how difficult that is. Yeah. Uh, and, and, or minute changes and no problem. And then, so, so, so he was kind enough to give me a, 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 a deal that I could afford. And then the musicians uh, were basically four random amazing musicians from, from the Philharmonic Orchestra in Bergen. But they also happened to be part of this kind of Norwegian national contemporary art music ensemble called Bit 20. And this is what happens. The heads of Bit20 contact me and say, what the hell is going on? I'm like, what the hell, what do you mean? So why are all these guys with you for this festival? And I'm like, because your artistic director gave me the tip of contacting these specific four musicians. So what the hell is the problem? And they were like, well, the problem is we want to be part of it. So, so, so suddenly, it's not me kind of hiring these guys on, but a true collaborative project. Yeah. Right. So, so, so it didn't start off like that, but it became a collaboration between me and basically the National Contemporary Art Music Ensemble, Bit20. And it's all such a insane, you know, endless line of random accidents and lies and uh, <laughs> lucky, lucky. Sometimes shots. you need a lie to get to get there, right? Like uh, to make make it happen and. Yeah, man. And, and the funny thing is that the, the guy who, who, who practically, technically engineered the recording was Kings of Convenience touring uh, sound engineer. Okay. And who, who also, who yeah. also travels with Boy Pablo. And, and he is from that metal scene. I remember him from when I was 12 and 13. So he's, he, he's from that very original group of guys who became the Norwegian black metal scene emerging out of that, that concert halls so it, it all sort of came together the very first show i ever played was 50 meters up the street at a, at a rock joint called garage my mm -hmm. concert was reviewed by one of the most classic norwegian uh, live concert journalists and he also reviewed the very first show i did at garage in 1989 
So this this night was like really everything coming together. It was at the hall where I saw my very first live show ever in 1986, which was which was a Norwegian band called uh, the Monroes, which was like a Norwegian version of of um, what what is the name? Oh goddamn, what is their name? The ones with the song uh, "Our House in the Middle of Oh, the uh, talking. No, not uh, madness. No, uh, man, madness. Okay, yeah. I was like, why is it? Yeah, yeah. And and the bass riff of that song is actually in one of my songs. I stole it. Uh, Anyways, uh, so that day was just like it was a day when everything came together. So I just thought, okay, I need to record this, cross my fingers, and hope that it works. And then, so so what happened was, I. I went on stage that night to premiere all these songs. I never played them ever before. Yeah, I did. I didn't know these musicians. Like we had, we had two short rehearsals together, and you know that's two short rehearsals. Each rehearsal was two hours. That basically gives yeah. you just enough time to just play through the songs and then do right. adjustments and correct mistakes and shit, right? But then you go on stage. There's no conductor. There's no one. We don't really know who's going to set the tempo, who's going to take charge of which direction the song is going to go. We're standing in a line, so we don't even see each other. The hard player is so far away from me that I can barely hear him. You know, and 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 mind you, even though I write the lyrics, I have a difficulties remembering my own lyrics, right? And yeah. and it's a sold out show after like a year of lockdown during COVID, right? There is a stream and it's being recorded. So it, this is a 99% chance of complete failure, right? And then I get the recordings and they're so surprisingly good that I get Mark Rankin to mix it. And this is the guy who mixed and produced Rolling in the Deep by Adele, mm -hmm. right? And he produced, you know, Queens of the Stone Age, Weezer, Iggy Pop, uh, Florence and the Machine, blah, 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 all sorts. And he comes back at this amazing album thanks to all of these weird risk takings yeah. me and my friends so that's yeah uh, what a lucky accident that whole thing is yeah and it's i mean it is such a risk-taking thing and it's such a departure from what you you've done with data rock as well right i mean to to go yeah. and put your put your name on it and say okay this is what I'm putting out out into the world, and it's is not what you're expecting from from uh, from Data Rock, but this is where I'm at right now, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But I mean, it, you know, this similar kind of songwriting did kind of find its way into into Data Rock too. Like, for instance, if you hear the last song on the Red album, there's a song called "New Day's Dawn," and it's very similar. It could have been on my solo album, you know. And, and even on the very first album, you had, you had songs like like Laurie. It's like if you you know the basic structures of Laurie or even Bulldozer. A, a lot of them have similarities, you know. But but it was really nice to just be able to be you know full on emo on my own stuff, because then I can sort of protect Data Rock, so it can so I can maintain that as a Prozac in my life, you know. Yeah. Because yeah. because for instance, when we did the last album with Data Rock, which was called Face the Brutality, which is a pretty dark album. That made Data Rock into a pretty serious dark thing, right? Sure. But it, yeah. but it was, and that felt kind of wrong because we wanted our depressed friends to be able to come to a Data Rock show and, and just have a little bit of fun. 
So it kind of felt weird to, to try to force that side of us into data rock. So, so when, and, and this is what I feel, as soon as I, I, I got to sort of uh, ventilate that very serious part of myself, I guess, in my solo stuff, it was so much easier to do data rock as what I think that is supposed to be, right? Yeah. So suddenly with, 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 the, with the new data rock material we're doing now, <clears throat> We're working with Steve Dubb, who did everything for Chemical Brothers. And like our keyboard player, Stig, the mystical cost operator, who's been, who's been with us since, um, since uh, oh, give me a second here. Who's been with us since 2003. He never contributed to any songwriting ever. Suddenly he, he helped write half of the songs in the new album. Yeah. You know, so, 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 so if you, if, if you, I think it's a, it's a very, good tip to everybody working in a band what is going on i, I tried to turn <laughs> off i i did press turn off okay there you go um when well if you if you if you have something that you want to express that doesn't really fit into a band do something solo keep the band be a collaborative thing you know and then come back to it fresh right like i mean yeah Exactly. Yeah, no, it's a, it's great to be able to do that uh, for sure. And, and so as you're going back into the new data rock with, uh, um, with Steve and with uh, Mark Reagan, what is the, what does that look like? Where, how far along are you in that, in that process with the new album? Very far actually. Yeah. Almost, almost finished. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Mark Rankin is mixing some of the new stuff there. Well, what we managed to do was to sort of, we brought it back to, uh, well, musically and arrangements and the and the energy and the the rhythms and all of that is is kind of I'd say luckily kind of back to where it started, so to speak. So it's a uh, and I mean I identify more with uh, you know LCD sound system and even Chemical Brothers and all of that than than I do to like rock bands even though data rock is kind of like a rock band right We're, yeah i don't i mean i think data rock is good when we're when we're a crossover band we're not particularly good if we're this or that we're just good if we're in the middle somewhere. i don't need to define it yeah <laughs> you know what i mean so so uh no but it, um it's uh it's a huge departure from what we've been doing the last couple of years uh, it's substantially more electronic, uh, and we wanted it to be, you know, energetic and uh, and fun. But then, because we did most of the songwriting during COVID, obviously, a hell of a lot of seriousness did kind of crawl into that too. I mean, we were pissing our pants over here when you had that goddamn election last December. Huh. You know, oh, man. Such, such a terrible situation. I, I was even at a wake to follow the, the U.S. election, you know, and, yeah. uh, uh, you know, post-Ukraine, like uh, the, 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 the scary election of the U.S. was kind of, you know, got to us, you know. And uh, so, so, I mean, one of the songs, TikTok, is all about that election, to be frank. Uh, 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 another song is uh, uh, called Digital Life. That is all about Brexit, you know. And it's a funny song. If you if you if you if you look up, because all these songs are pre-album singles, 
they'll end up on the album. So we've released three singles from the album already, right? Okay. That's a song yeah. called Digital Life, a song called TikTok, a song called Video Store. And there's another one coming out called Double Vision, uh, June 17th. Because now all, all the regular band members are now back together. Yeah, so you're doing this, you're, you're planning this tour, right? So where you're going to yeah. have uh, like two drummers and two of each. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. It's such a headache. You can't believe it. Like, <laughs> I can only imagine. It's such, a, oh no, it's such a headache. And, and everybody has like, you know, kids, wives, work, responsibilities. One of the guys is even building a new house, you know? It's, <laughs> it's, it's impossible to get these guys together. I got, got them all together once for pizza at my pizza joint. That's it. Like we yeah. got back together last summer. We haven't even been in the same room besides for eating some pizza and drinking beer. And, and this Thursday, it's the very first time we get to get everybody together for a rehearsal. And it took a year, you know? Yeah, <laughs> and that's for a rehearsal, let alone a tour and everything, right? Yeah, no, it's, it's right? going yeah. be, yeah. oh, to be so hard. And, and just imagine, like, we're doing this festival in Oslo, and it, it's still it's Norway. Yet we have to fly seven musicians and at least two technicians across the country for one show. Wow. Yeah. It's yeah. terrible, you know? No, but uh, I just wanted to say that uh, what happened to our album is that it's, uh, it, I mean, there is, some of the songs are, you know, pretty funny. One of the songs is just about Ian Flux, the cartoon made by MTV in the early 90s. Why? Well, because I think it, but, but I mean, I think it's, it's relevant to the content of the, of the remaining songs. Well, the album is going to be called Dead Rock's Media Consumption Pyramid. Okay. Because that's what everybody has become. I mean, we've become media consumers. That's our main occupation, it seems, especially during lockdown, right? I must yeah. have seen so many hours of series and films on various streaming services that I made up for my lack of watching TV from when I was a kid till I was an adult during COVID. Yeah. You know? Yeah. You've caught and, up and, for sure, huh? Yeah. And 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 uh, and uh, and also, I mean, it, it is kind of scary to um, to realize how uh, powerful certain media exposure can be. Like, for instance, if you get all of your news via Facebook, that might be not a good decision. However, yeah, we know yeah. that's just how it is for a lot of people. You know, a lot of people use that for sure. Yeah. Yeah, so so it's like uh, it's the new Deadwork album is it sounds like all fun and games, but if you if you listen to the lyrics and realize some references even in the music, then you kind of realize that it that it has a, a serious what do you say double bottom or whatever you call yeah, it yeah double entendre sort of thing double meaning you know yeah yeah but you don't have to care about it you know you just come to the show and have a good time you know yeah. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, well, so as we wrap out, I'm, I'm told you uh, you're able to play an acoustic song for the, the program. Here. Absolutely, and I've, I like I planned it. this so I planned this so well. That's why I'm in the bedroom. So because uh, the girls are here, I obviously have two girls and one. Yeah, two, two teenagers, almost teenagers, right? One of them is almost a teen. And uh, and are they musical at all? Are they you know following um, in your footsteps uh, there? If, if if they play music, you mean? If they, they like yeah, they play yeah, instruments? 
Um, yeah, a little bit, but um, I don't know, man. Perhaps I, perhaps I forced them to come to to because they came to our shows in like Japan and Australia and all sorts of stuff. So perhaps they sort of saw that that wasn't the life they wanted. I don't know. So they ended up dancing instead, and yeah. I don't mind. That's fine. I, I no, mean, I, I did their thing. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, who knows? Perhaps they'll start music at a later age. I don't know. Yeah. Okay. So, so I realized I should put in both. So you get stereo sound. You get stereo sound now. Sure. Yeah. Or did you get? Did you get stereo sound with just the one yeah. or two? Or I don't know. I, try the other one in and see if, see how that works. Yeah. Well, no, no, yeah. no. It's, oh, yeah. Both you got in. a button. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Let's see how it oh. sounds. Okay, so does yeah. it work? Okay, so I thought it was gonna, uh, I mean, as I said, I should show you again because now the sun is up. So the solo album, so this is where I live. This is a house from 1890. And across that, that little uh, garden, there's another house from 1890. Oh. Such a beautiful and, area. I, I agree, but I mean, I live in Bergen, so it's an old town. A lot of houses like this here. But but anyways, that, that building is actually an office building where my accountant has his office. And my accountant, he doesn't have sons or kids to play music. So he's sold your, your, your guitar, yeah. Yeah, so, so the very first guitar I ever bought was from him when he was young. He had this tiny little guitar instrument store downtown and I, and I bought a guitar from him and going into covid lockdown he said i want to give you this guitar which is an one uh, it's the it's an hd 28 martin it's the 175 year anniversary model of the same guitar that beatles used for all their steel string guitar recordings and it's the very first steel string guitar i ever owned so so this is this is the reason why I ended up writing songs like You know, you don't write stuff like that on on a Steinberger electric yeah. guitar, you know. Yeah. So so that's how I came up with this riff like I don't see I think you can see it but I picked the the, the string with my little finger like You see? Uh-huh. Yeah. So, so anyway, so I don't think you can hear the particular little details of the riff, but I'm going to sing my uh, Corona song or isolation song. I'm a rock. Is that okay? I love it. Yes, it sounds great. Okay, let's do it. I guess it's the love song from my wife. You are a mountain and I'm a rock. You are a fountain and I'm rain when it drops down on nothing surround. I'm gonna have to put this out because I can't hear anything. Don't wanna be there. I swear. There's nothing to see there for the faith that and fit downtown. 
uptown Now gonna grow go to now gonna do now and a desperate crisis can help produce real change. High as a mountain, deep as a river, like lovers grow strange. Spring was a mountain. Now spring is a rock at the bottom of the ocean. Spring was a fountain. Now it's rain and it drops down on the ground. Nothing around, nothing to grow, no one to hold you, nothing to do, nowhere to go to. I know desperate crisis can help produce real change. High as a mountain, deep as a river, like lovers grow estranged. Don't want to be here, isolated. There's nothing to see here for the faint that and fear. Don't want to be here, incarcerated. There's nothing to see here for the faint that and fear. That's it. I love it. Was it okay? It was great. Yeah. No. So, so I mean, so that's what you do, right? You're sitting in a basement of a house. There's no one downtown. There's nothing to do, and that's what you end up writing, you know. And it, that's what the guy said when I got the guitar. He said, "I was like, what the hell? What? Why are you giving me this guitar?" And he said, "Well, so you can write something nice on it." And hopefully, I did. You know, <laughs> it was beautiful. It was a great song. I love it. Yeah, but do you want to um, show you something real quick? Yeah, yeah show me. I mean, everybody's oh, it's so different to Data Rock. It's not so different to Data Rock. Like even a song like Fa Fa Fa. Check it out. I need a shot. I need a shot of nutrition. I need a head. I need a bit of nutrition. I need a fix. I need to fix my nutrition. If you want to whip me into shape, I need a plan and a mission. Cause I'm on a ride, going nowhere. I mean, and so on. It's not a very cheerful song. It's all goddamn depressing, right? Or a song like this. Where do you come from? Where are you going? What is the fear? What's your dream? If there's a solution, what's your solution? Don't you care? What do you folks do? What's the religion? What is the past? Do they know the situation, the tribulation? And will this last? I, 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 I. I don't want to be no hero. I wouldn't care to wear a halo. So where to go? I don't really know. Don't even want to be a catcher in the ride. I, 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 I. And so on, right? So they're all guitar songs, you know? Yeah. Most and of then you build upon them. Yeah. Yeah, and like like this. 
you know, if you listen to riffs like that, which is the solo stuff, right? And so on. But then you have stuff like, check it out. This is this is a data rock song. Not let me give me a second. Sorry, where the hell is it? Yeah. There you go. Okay. The wind caught the seagull and chased it up the shore. See how it trembles, giving in, drifting on. A boy lit a cigarette while a girl closed the door. These hopeless romantic fools won't be lovers no more. And then so on, right? So they're all just guitar songs. That's what I'm saying. It's not, you know, put a little bit of uh, of uh, offbeat hi hats and uh, you know distorted guitars, percussion on anything in the dance music, you know? Yeah, and it's one thing to do. Like, I mean. You've you've done the whole rock show and everything. I mean, the tour with a full band and and all of that. And I know there's a piece of you that wants to get out there and just just do an acoustic show, like like oh, we're doing man. right now, yeah. right? And just and just break it down and keep it at its bare bones basics, right? Like yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean that is. I mean, not all all music. A lot of music is about just the, you know the beat and the and the and the synth or the sounds, but. The kind of stuff I do that is the foundation of every song you know yeah but I do realize that it, I mean of course I mean if you go to a show and you expect that again I'm there with my acoustic guitar and white t-shirt instead of a red tracksuit that's disappointing I, I realize <laughs> you know it, it, it is but I mean you know fans like the d different things right I mean and and there's yeah I, I tell you like the, the bands that I'm the biggest fan of you know yeah, you love the the great all out rock show, but then you yeah. see something so unique and and then break from that mold a little bit uh -huh, and uh -huh. uh, and do something just like strip it down and take take the song at at its essence and and it's just yeah. there's nothing like it, right? Nothing compares to it, and you feel like it's you're seeing something that's really special. It's also, like like yeah. if you're see, seeing an album, I mean, uh, an artist play this album that's pivotal to you, and they're play you play it in its entirety. You know, you feel like you're at this thing that's just like so unique and you're like, yeah, you're never going to see again. Right. So, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. But but I think like like uh, especially with the kind of music that I've been kind of part of. It's so you have so many production sides to a lot of genres that make a song ephemeral. Right. If you produce it in a particular kind of way, it's so goddamn ephemeral. Right. Yeah. You know, if you like like, for instance, a lot of the bands that that we played with in the UK in 2007 and eight, they were labeled new rave, right? Like klaxons and shit disco and all that. And they put in like siren sound, wee, wee, right? And, and you know, very contemporary production um, styles to their songs, but they were really skillful songwriters, but they just yeah. disappeared because the, the whole mannerism around the music and the, and the style of production and no criticism to anyone, but, it kind of took away the the uh, the um, oh how do you put it in English the timeless qualities of songwriting right and that's yeah. and that's really what 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 kind of uh, this um, string arrangements to my songs opened up my eyes to and that is wait a minute I'm 
I'm not in the line of business where everything is about the new kind of sub base or how you produce the base to have both the sub, the sub and the punch and the the whatever top and then the, how you do the production of the voice or go back side to side and I don't know what the hell. I, I'm really in the line of the same kind of stuff that a troubadour did in 1685, you know, 1809. I'm, I'm, I have a string instrument of six strings, very, you know, the same tuning, the same basic principle of sound, song, songwriting, melodic structures, how you, how you time a phrase of the song, how even the most dumb sentence can be beautiful if you just phrase it and pronounce it the right way, you know. And, and, and playing with these amazing, like the amazing musicians, that's one thing, but like even their instruments, their instruments were like 300 years old. Yeah. So, so there's, there's a guy standing next to me. Well, the, viol, uh, the, the violin player was from the US. The, the viola player was from uh, Latvia. The cellist was, was from Russia. And the harp player was Norwegian. So these are people from all over the world. They're so accomplished and so skillful. And then they play these instruments that are timeless in nature because they're goddamn 300 years old. You yeah. know, they've played everything on the planet and I'm standing there just bewildered, like, God damn, that instrument is now so skillfully executing something that I wrote. And I'm so goddamn pleased with the fact that I'm not linked to the goddamn playlist on Spotify or whatever algorithm bullshit. It's just about the way we communicate together and the phrasing, and you know what I mean? Being in the moment so, with something that's that feels bigger than you, even right, like exactly been, been exactly. here longer than you, and you know, like yeah. you, you pay respect to it, right? So, I, I, yeah, exactly. And and I remember in, in music high school, I had this um, amazing guy in my class who first ended up at the music conservatory play, uh, as a pianist and then as a classic guitar player, or the other way around. Anyways, he was so damn serious about music when we were young. I remember once, probably on a drunken night, he said. But do remember one thing, Frederick. Music is not a personal, private matter. It's a interrelationship matter or something like that, you know? And that's, yeah. a, that's a weird thing for a 16, 17-year-old kid to say. But it was, he is so right. Like, okay, I wrote these songs based on the limited skill I've developed when it comes to songwriting and understanding of the, of the, of the instrument, right? It's not mine. I did something which is based on the limited experience I have and knowledge, and then I pass it on to someone who wrote, writes these very skillful arrangements, which are then not executed exactly what, as he wrote it. No, no, no. They do it whatever they want to do. And then perhaps some of the times I'll say, no, I wasn't thinking right like that. Can you try to do it more lyrical like this? And then it was like, mm -hmm, yes. And they would do one note, in, in, in the note, by the way, the notes was a 209 page piece of book. Yeah. And every time I went through a song, I said, Oh, can you play it more lyrical? Start slower, la la la. And they would just put it in, yes, put it in a note. And then they did it like that. So it's a very, li it's a living organism, those arrangements, right? Yeah. And then, and then, and, and then being able to sort of step away from what you do, even when you're singing it yourself and on stage, that it's not about me, it's not about me at all. It's about being accepted with this material by this festival because it's really curated and not, not curated for making a profit. It's just curated because they thought it was good, right? 
and they knew the musicians were amazing. They knew the arranger is very accomplished, and I get to be part of this, you know. Yeah. And it's not. It's not about. Of course, it's about ego. I I understand. But it's not. A, it's definitely not about me. I did, I wasn't on that stage because of me. I was there because of them, you know. Yeah. I just happened to and play my songs. Exactly, and the people that were there to see you and and them and in the unique experience and live music, which is you know, which has been gone for for so long, right? I mean, it's, oh, yeah. it's all everything all in once, you know. So. I mean, it's... yeah, by the way, I'll tell you something really, really absurd. I went to a show with very young people recently. Like, there can't have been anyone besides me there over 20 years old. And, you know, they're so out of the habit of going to live shows. They don't know you're supposed to clap your hands in between songs. Mm. Have you seen it? Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. It's yeah. crazy. That's what they're doing. They, they didn't even, the kids nowadays, they don't even know how to act at a show. No. You're like, okay, give me more, give me more, you know? <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> no yeah. but it's really, it, it really is absurd. Uh, and yeah, I mean, I'm so happy. The world of music is, is still so, you know, varied and segmented that there are certain aspects of music that isn't 100% dictated by the kind of the homogenous nature of streaming services and algorithms, you know? Yeah. And there are certain things that still sort of, stand as solid today as it did when i was a kid like for instance the pleasure of getting a great great you know insightful review because even music journalism is kind of faded away you know yeah yeah i mean there's just so much of everything it's everything's so expensive and it's hard to kind of confine it into this little little thing and isolate it and simplify it like you just you know did it with your songs and you can do with their you know acoustic yeah you know, breaking it down to acoustic True. right so yeah. yeah no but i think well i think i i really i re this was such a nice experience and i really recommend anyone who can to try to do something similar because yeah because the kind of the kind of uh pleasure you take in well it doesn't have to be classical instruments at all but being able to being able to play music without a rigid metric beat for instance just you know being able to play with people without a goddamn backing track you know yeah it becomes so it's become so normal and so common because the 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 backing tracks that people use on stage also very often triggers lights and all sorts of crap like the i don't know pyrotechnical stuff or whatever right so it's all yeah. stems from the same source of clock in it's all part of the same Ableton. yeah same same exact shows exactly every night like nothing not, not mixing it up yeah. right yeah and like the, everybody has in ears and the main mm -hmm. source of sound in the in there might be a click track or whatever you know but but that thing that happens to your your soul when you interlock with someone with beats and energy and the same sort of understanding of phrasing and tempo and because the tempo obviously goes up and down all the time right like the heart the, the heart goes up and down in tempo that's how music is supposed yeah. to be you know but when you have a rigid metric rhythm pattern that's kind of counterintuitive to how music is supposed to be you know yeah so yeah so even, even just being able to do a little bit of stuff without well, you know, even drum machines had more of a life than computers because the computers are actually rigid met metric. 
Whereas if you record a drum machine, it, it does actually go out of grid if you look at a, a, a recording session, right? Yeah. So yeah, yeah. Throw away the backing tracks and the and the and the and, and the MIDI clock for a while, guys. <laughs> for for real, for real. Yeah. Well, Fred, Fred, Frederick, I want to thank you for taking the time today and uh, and playing uh, some songs too. I mean, that was that's always a real pleasure. And and I hope you're able to get out to we'll call it San Francisco, Sacramento. It doesn't have to be Napa because I'm not here anymore. Yeah, so. <laughs> Are you going to Sacramento or San Francisco? It's 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 almost to Sacramento. It's this town called Vacaville. Right, right, right. So we played um, Sacramento many times. Yeah, yeah. Well, come on back and you know, and I'll uh, check it out. We'll hang out, have a have a beer, and uh, <laughs> definitely, yeah, or and, even some Napa wine. Ah, yes, yes, exactly. And just we because have I'm leaving Napa, Casale's fifty by fifty. Ah, yes, hey. yes. <laughs> hey, you come out to Sacramento. I'll find it. I'll bring it. So <laughs> nice. Okay. Definitely yeah. hope to see you there, man. Yeah. Well, well, thanks, Frederick. I mean, and it was great to get an insight into you know all, all of your music, but I'm looking forward to the uh, the new Data Rock album as well when that uh, that comes out. And you know, keep getting after it. Like I, I mean, uh, you got so much passion and so much liveliness, and it's uh, you know, creativity. Think of keep doing those out of the box ways of uh, you know approaching your music. It's uh, your fans love it. So. Yeah, I will thank you so much. I'll, I'll do my very best to keep going, you know? Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Well, well, have a good rest of your day, okay? Hey, thank you so much for inviting me in. I really appreciate it. Of course. Nice of course. talk. And, and I'll send links along when it's uh, when it's live here as well. Um, so oh, you're great. Thank you. So I'll share yeah. for sure. <laughs> All right. You have a good one, okay, Frederick? Right, man. Have a good one. Good luck with the move, man. Oh, thank you. It's almost done. It's a, it's a beast. It's just, you know, when you have kids, you get stuff. Oh, I know, it's just, it's, I know, I know. Uh, yes. When we moved <laughs> here, it was supposed to be a two, two week process, took two months. It was such a goddamn ordeal. Yeah. We sort of decided if we don't get, uh, you know, if we don't break up after this, we'll never break up. And we haven't yeah. after 12 years. So, so just yeah. get through the move and you'll be together forever. That's an important part, right? So <laughs> <laughs> that was the interview with Frederick from Data Rock, and uh, that takes us to our final segment on the program, the music news. I hate to say it, but today's music news is kind of all about dead people. I mean, it's got this theme. I, I'm sorry. It's going to be a little bit of a downer for the music news, but uh, some interesting stories nonetheless. So uh, Chester Bennington, I'm sure everybody um, watching or listening to this program is familiar with Chester Bennington from Lincoln Park. Well, before Lincoln Park, he had this other band called Grey Days. Uh, and Grey Days, at the beginning of COVID, actually was on Concert Pipeline here. You uh, can check out Concert Pipeline's Tumblr, I'm sure, uh, maybe YouTube. Um, and go back and check out that interview uh, with Sean Darren uh, from Grey Days. Um, Chester Bennington was not on Grey Days because he's not with us anymore. But uh, there's a new Grey Days single called Starting to Fly. Um, and so, again, this is the band that he formed before Linkin Park. Uh, they have a forthcoming album, The Phoenix. And when we interviewed Sean Darren back in 2020 uh, from Grey Days, he's the drummer for the band. He had kind of hinted that there was 
another album's worth of material that he had to go through and uh, was, would probably be another album on the way. So here, here it is. It's not far away right now. Um, it's going to be out June 17th, actually. Um, last month's single uh, came out, Saturation, Strange Love. Uh, Bennington left the band in 1998, but he reunited with them and was in the middle of re-recording music for a new album when he died in 2017, five years ago now. So Sean's been going through this music and trying to pay tribute to Chester, making it something that he would be proud of. Um, it's a new rock anthem about finding yourself and your true potential. It's realizing you can make the world yours. It's a song about hope. How high can we go, says drummer and songwriter Sean Dowdle. Uh, so there's a, a video for the track directed by Heidi Gadd, uh, and it features Bennington and the band along with behind-the-scenes footage from the Phoenix recording sessions, which you can check out online. Uh, a 10-song collection that intends to honor the late singer with contributions from Dave Navarro, Jane's Addiction, which is really awesome, Richard Patrick and Bennington's daughters, Lily and Lila Bennington. So... Um, again, it's a follow-up to 2020's Amends, uh, an album of reworked tracks from their back catalog built around Bennington's original vocal takes. NME calls it a great modern rock record fronted by one of the best vocalists in the game in a four-star review. So um, pretty, pretty cool. Check, check that out um, if you have time. So um, all right. Uh, My Chemical Romance played some big-ass shows um, over in the UK um but it wasn't all positive news uh there was a dead body following my chemical, chemical romance uh, milton keys uh show uh dead man was discovered at the uh, milton keys bowl which was being used as a park and stride for three my chemical romance concerts a dead body has been found in a milton keys park car park uh being used for the uh, stadium concerts according to mk citizen the body was discovered on may 21st at uh, there, uh, which was being used for Park and Stride. Police arrived at the scene at around 8.30 p.m. and witnesses said intensive searches were being carried out. Uh, some concert goers who had parked at the bowl reported that they were prevented from moving their cars after the concert finished at 10.30. That would suck. I would be so pissed, but then realized later that, you know, if someone died, you know, I was being pretty selfish, right? Uh, by, by being pissed about not being able to get out at night. Um, so uh, the death is being treated as an uh, unexplained but non-suspicious act. Uh, Thames Valley Police is investigating uh, this as such. It's not being treated as a crime. There's a scene watch in place where, uh, while inquiries are being carried out. Uh, a file will be prepared for the coroner, but I can confirm it's, it's a body of a man, apparently. Um, police are uh, yet to reveal how the body was found or whether the deceased next of kin have been informed. So uh that is kind of what uh what uh, you know what's going on with that story so um all right a couple more stories here before we wrap um this is uh about paris jackson who uh paid homage to nirvana with a new single lighthouse uh now i'm exploring the anger she said of her new sound paris jackson released a new 90s rock inspired track called lighthouse uh, there's a video for the song and it's inspired by Silver, by Nirvana. Um, and it even features a photo of Kurt Cobain. She said, I continue to write about this same old heartbreak that uh, her 2020 album, uh, Wilted, is about, uh, connecting the dots between her debut album and her latest track. A lot of the new songs uh, coming out are similar stories about the same person and heartbreak. I guess I'm just exploring different feelings. 
Wilfred was more melancholy record and now I'm exploring more of the anger. Um, so uh, it's uh, apparently Nirvana-esque. You can check that out uh, if you like. All right, and the last story is an interesting one to be true. Uh, a man was arrested for shooting Johnny Cash tribute to make it look like he's peeing. Um, okay, for context, uh, there's a vandalized Johnny Cash, Cash tribute in Arkansas. I'll show the picture right here for those watching on YouTube and you can see water squirting out of where Johnny Cash's penis would be. Um, all right, a man in Kingsland, Arkansas, the birthplace of country music legend Johnny Cash has been arrested for shooting a tribute to the late musician. The town has a silhouette of Cash painted on a huge water tower, which has been shot in the crotch area. So he actually shot uh, uh, Johnny Cash's crotch. A steady stream of water is now flowing from the tower and gives the impression of the Cash is peeing. According to TMZ, Timothy Sled has been arrested following a police investigation. He's received two felony charges, one for impairing the operation of a vital public utility and another for criminal mischief. Uh, so uh, apparently the tower's huge capacity um, of uh, 50,000 gallons of water, the artwork has been peeing for over a week. Jesus. Uh, uh, and it's led to discolored household water for the town's 347 residents and low water pressure. Um, and it apparently costs the town roughly $200 every day, and Mayor Luke Neal estimates the repair require, will require another $5,000. A second person might also be arrested for the vandalism. Uh, that is the story. Um, yeah. Um, all right. I hope he's proud of himself, uh, wasting a, a shit ton of water and doing a pretty childish act on Johnny Cash. I mean, like, haha, ha, it's, it, it's so, you know, really funny. I mean, it's... It's not, right? Like Johnny Cash is a legend. It's a waste of water. I'm not getting the joke on that one, but uh, you know, I'm not the one who did the act either, right? So that's where that's at. Um, all right. Well, thank you for, uh, to Data Rock for taking the time being on the program today. Bottle Rock is this coming weekend. So got lots of interviews, but we also have a couple uh, you know, in the works outside of Bottle Rock that are, uh, are lined up. So I'll tease some of the stuff we got cooking. Uh, we have, um, Smash Mouth, I'm interviewing the new lead singer of Smash Mouth um, this coming week, most likely. Um, so we'll get a chance to hear that. Um, Split Persona, uh, there's an interesting story behind this band interview and I, uh, I, I'm looking forward to doing that one as well. I'm not sure if that will get out before Bottle Rock or after, but uh, we're gonna have a lot of content rolling out. And then an, a handful of interviews uh, at Bottle Rock are, are scheduled to happen as of now but have not as of this taping. So um, I'll, I'll just tease that a band called Lily, a band called The Alive, uh, I'm supposed to interview. Uh, Typhi Houston, I'm supposed to interview also at the festival. Maybe a couple others will, um, will be taking place. So lots of content coming in the coming weeks uh, here on Concert Pipeline. Thank you for tuning in. For all of us here at Concert Pipeline, I'm Steve Jones. This is my motherfucking house. Uh, I'll catch you next time. <laughs>